And it says Luke 24. But it's Luke 23, verse 46. It's wrong in your bulletin. It says Luke 24. But it's Luke 23, verse 46. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to welcome you again to West Haven on this wonderful Easter morning. Easter is a day when hope is renewed, faith is deepened, the anticipation of heaven grows, and it's because we're reminded, we're refocused on this resurrection of Jesus. Today we're near the end of a series entitled From the, Cro uh, excuse me, From the Cross to the Crown as we've examined a few of the events on the way to Jesus' resurrection. We've seen him betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, condemned by Pilate, and then crucified by many. Today, though, the sermon is simply entitled, Risen. And again, if you're new to Christianity, what we celebrate today is the bedrock truth of the faith, and it's this. After suffering and dying for our sins, Jesus of Nazareth rose on the third day, never to die again, thereby defeating our problem of death. Death can come so unexpectedly. Someone told me this week of a good friend that just simply suddenly died. Nothing wrong with him, just that was it. In 2007, there was an uh, international conference for cardiologists in Vienna, Austria. I read this story the other day. A 46-year-old Viennan cardiologist collapsed during one of the sessions. Despite the attempts of her fellow cardiologists and other medical professionals to save her, she died the next day. So death can come unexpectedly, but death always comes. In 1900, the average age of a male at death was 38. For a woman, it was 42. But no matter how long they lived or how long we live, death is coming like a freight train in a tunnel. Everything we need to face death and possess the certain hope of rising again is found in these words we're about to read this morning. This is the inerrant word of God. Let's read them. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And then over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, it says, For in Adam, excuse me, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then go over to verse 42. If you notice in the bulletin, I have the letter B. That just means the second sentence in the verse. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. Referring to our resurrection body, it says, It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I want you to see this morning, first of all, two important cries. Jesus made seven famous statements while on the cross this morning. Let's examine two. And the first one is a cry of separation. From the sixth hour, which was noon in Jewish reckoning, to the ninth hour, which of course was three in the afternoon, there was complete darkness. During that time, Jesus became the sin offering for the whole world. God poured out his righteous wrath on his own son. And near the end of those three hours, Jesus could no longer bear this separation from God. Matthew 27, verse 46 says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out 
with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is beyond human understanding. At Jesus' baptism, God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He repeated that statement when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. John 3.35 says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 5.20 says for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He does. But here, Jesus is conscious of separation from the Father. This is the only place in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus addressed God without calling Him Father. Why did this happen? And the answer is because the sin of every man and woman has separated and alienated us from God. Being a just and holy God, he must punish the sinner. Otherwise, he would be unjust and unholy and therefore not a perfect God. So he poured out his wrath on his own son in our place for our sins. But what exactly does pouring out his wrath mean? During that three hours of darkness, writers have pointed out that Jesus endured the elements of hell for us on the cross. I want to show you six ways, and remember, this is what Jesus did for you. Number one, he was in complete darkness. Something supernatural happened during those three hours. No eclipse lasts for three hours. Plus, it was during the Passover, which coincides with a full moon. The full moon is on the wrong side of the earth to cause a solar eclipse. So it wasn't an eclipse. It wasn't a Scirocco, as some have said. This was an element of hell because hell is called a place of outer darkness. Number two, he was in conscious torment. He was scourged, beaten, and physically nailed to a cross. He felt excruciating pain in his body. Jesus told us that hell is a place of conscious torment, a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Number three, he was bearing sin. Isaiah 54 in the Old Testament prophesied that the Lord would lay the iniquity of us all on him. 1 Peter 2.24 in the New Testament says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He had no sin, but he bore our sins on the cross. People in hell bear their own sin. This is what Jesus did for us. Number four, he faced off against demonic powers. Colossians 2.15 says, At the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through Jesus. Those rulers and authorities are demons. They were at the cross. Number five, he experienced judgment. Hell is the just Punishment for sins. God poured out the full measure of that punishment on Jesus on the cross. And then number six, he was separated from the knowledge of the love of God. Now this, this is also beyond our understanding. A little lesson on the Trinity. God is one in essence, but three in persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are not Three roles God plays. God's essence is not divided. It is fully seen in all three persons. Yet the second person of the Trinity said he was separated from the first person of the Trinity? This is a great mystery, but here's what we do know. The love of God was beyond Jesus' reach. And this is an element of hell. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, In hell men suffer punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord. Part of hell is knowing that the love of God is there, but you cannot access it. And today, hell is not believed by most people. But if someone says hell is not real, then why was there a cross? Why did Jesus suffer? Why the darkness? Why the account of the cross in all four Gospels? Why did Jesus cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry of separation. But there was a second cry, and that was a cry of victory. A cry of victory. Look at Luke 23, verse 46. Jesus crying out, again, with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. He's quoting Psalm 31, a prophecy from the Old Testament of what would happen at his death. Many of you have had the unfortunate experience of being with a person as their life ebbs away. They can speak, their voice fades, it becomes a whisper, then silence, and then death. But no one ever dies with a loud voice. It takes air in the diaphragm to speak loudly. People on the cross usually died of suffocation. They couldn't lift themselves upright enough to get enough air into the diaphragm. Jesus didn't die that way. He didn't go out into death quietly. He went out shouting in victory. Amen. <laughs> Mark tells us a centurion saw the way he breathed his last and said, truly, this was the Son of God. But look again at verse 46. It says Jesus committed his spirit to God. Jesus was in complete control of his life. He could have disintegrated the nails, healed his wounds, come down from the cross, and vaporized the guards. Jesus died of his own free will. In John 10, 18, he said, No one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. He didn't surrender that authority when Judas betrayed him. He didn't surrender that authority when they seized him in Gethsemane. He chose to lay his life down for you. He had the authority to lay his life down. And John 18 also says he had the authority to take it up again. And three days later, he rose from that tomb. The last breath on the cross was a cry of victory. Two important cries. One perfect promise. Look over in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 22 there in 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam refers to humanity. When God created Adam, from the, his, he made a body from the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So every one of us are creations of God and we all are a body-spirit union. Or you could say body-soul, either one. When you die, no matter the disposition of the body, it will return to dust, but your spirit will live on forever. So first of all, when a Christian dies, his or her spirit goes to be with Jesus. Our body and our spirit are inextricably tied together until death. But Ecclesiastes 12.6 says, Remember God before the silver cord 
is broken. So our body and spirit are described as being tied together by a silver cord. That's a figure of speech. When you die, that cord is severed. The body turns to dust, but the spirit immediately goes to be with Jesus. So notice in Luke 23, even though Jesus was going to bodily rise from the dead, he didn't say, Father, into your hands I commit my body. He committed his spirit, and then he breathed his last. So first, this tells us Jesus definitely died. He didn't pass out and come to. Skeptics still circulate something called the swoon theory. It says that Jesus was nailed to a cross, lost blood, went into shock, and then was laid in a tomb. Yet with no fluids, no IV, no medical attention, he somehow recovered and had the strength to roll away the stone from the tomb. But this ultimately demonstrates that the focus of Scripture at death is not our body. It's our spirit. Now, you may spend a great deal of time taking care of your body. I, tr I do, and I encourage others to do the same. Our bodies are gospel delivery systems. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we do all that we can to stay healthy and active, but... The Bible also says bodily discipline is of little profit. It says godliness is profitable for all things because the Spirit holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The emphasis is on our spirit. So do not be fixated on the body. That is not who you are. The Spirit is who you are. And when a Christian dies, the Spirit, your Spirit, goes immediately to be with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Jesus told a thief who was bodily dying on a cross right next to him. He said, today, you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't referring to the thief's body. I say all this for this reason. As a believer, because of Jesus' resurrection, when death comes, you have nothing to fear. Not a thing. Charles Simeon was a great pastor from the early 1800s. And as he, he neared death, of course, people gathered around him. And while he could still speak, he said, What do you think especially gives me comfort at this time? All their guesses were wrong. As I read it, my guesses were wrong. His answer? creation he said did I create the world or did God create the world if God created the world he can certainly take care of me so into Jesus hands I can safely commit my spirit so death will come we will commit our spirits to Jesus and then one day the resurrected Jesus will return and 1 Thessalonians 4 says God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Fallen asleep is a figure of speech. It refers to those who are saved and have died. Their spirit has been with Jesus from the moment they died. So when a Christian dies, his or her spirit goes to be with Jesus. And when a Christian dies, he or she will be given a resurrected body. When Jesus comes... 
He will come in a glorified, resurrected body. In fact, Jesus exists right now in a glorified, resurrection body. When he comes, he will give you a body for your spirit. It will be a body no longer subject to pain, sickness, suffering, or sin in any form. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, the Apostle Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, the best definition of a mystery I've ever read is that a mystery is a secret God has revealed, but its full wonder has yet to be known. So there are details we do not know. What we do know has been given to us for our joy and our hope. So look at verse 20. I'm in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20 says, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and then it says... He was the first fruits of those who are asleep. In the Old Testament, the first fruits refer to the best of the crop. So Paul used this metaphor of the first fruits to speak of the relationship between Jesus' resurrection and your resurrection. Jesus, of course, is the best. It guarantees that the full harvest of the resurrection will come. It is the guarantee of the resurrection of all believers. Verse 22 promises, in Christ all will be made alive. But that brings up questions. What will this resurrection body be like? I don't want this body back. It's defective. I went online to return it and they said the return period already passed by 60 years. And it said I broke what I had in the first place. Nobody, I would assume nobody, wants this body back. So look at what the Holy Spirit tells us about our resurrection body. Verse 42, first of all, it's imperishable. It'll never wear out. It'll never deteriorate. All the limitations we experience now will be gone. All of our senses will be perfect. Jacob will not limp. Mephibosheth will not need crutches. Bartimaeus will see. Elijah will never be depressed. Moses will not stutter. Paul will have no thorn in the flesh. Our resurrection body will be imperishable. It will also be glorified. Verse 43 says, It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Sown in dishonor means we're born into sin, not by sin. But we will be raised in glory. Now this is another mystery. What will this be like? Matthew 13 says we will shine forth like the noonday sun. Romans 8 says we will be glorified with Jesus. And Philippians chapter 3 is the most amazing. It says Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. What will that be like? So our body will be raised glorified. It will also be powerful. Verse 43, sown in weakness, raised in power. Our bodies are born into weakness, subject to decay and disease and death. But our resurrection bodies will be raised by miraculous power, and we will continue to live in that power forever. And therefore, those bodies will be spiritual. Verse 44, it is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Well, what is a spiritual body? Well, our bodies right now are not spiritual. They work against us spiritually. Today, right now, 
Our spirit and our flesh are at war. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is always pulling us toward sin. A spiritual body is one connected to Jesus with no separation and no conflict. And therefore, it means our bodies will be secure. Look at verse 54. It says, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. No death because there's no sin. No sin because it's been defeated. The devil, the beast, and the false prophet are in the lake of fire, and we are secure with Jesus forever. Now here's the question. Do you believe this? Do you believe by faith that Jesus really is risen and that he lives today and therefore you have personally believed on him for salvation and therefore you would say today without any shadow of a doubt, I'm saved, I'm a Christian? How many of you have heard of the late Christopher Hitchens? Not very many, surprising. He was a very well-known atheist, very avowed atheist. I found a fascinating interview between him and a self-professed, self-described liberal Christian, a woman who once pastored a large church in Portland. She was interviewing him. She said to him, I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. For example, I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement that Jesus died for our sins. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? What she was saying was, you're right to take on these people who believe the Bible, but what about us? Hitchens' response was remarkable. He said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and that by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. And then he quoted verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is worthless you're still in your sins. She said, I consider myself a Christian and a person of faith, to which he said, do you mind if I ask you a question? Faith in what? Faith in a resurrection? She said that the resurrection is metaphorical, that it didn't really happen, to which Hitchens replied, well, I'm sorry, but fundamentalist means those who think that the Bible is a serious book and should be taken seriously. So the issue is right now, in your heart of hearts, what do you believe? Here's why I bring this up, and here's why I ask. Many Americans have a sentimental belief in Jesus around Easter time. I mean, it is a feel-good story. And you've got the Easter bunny and spring flowers and family gatherings, and it can evoke really good feelings. And it may generate an abstract belief in the concept of a resurrection, or it reinforces the common belief that is in most of mankind, and it's this. When I die, I'll go to a better place. Now, I don't know why, but I know I will be. But there's a lack of concrete belief in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, sent by a Father who loves you so you could be saved. Now, many people would say, well, I, I believe in God, and you have a concrete belief in God, but the Bible says you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe and shudder. So if a person believes in God and they take it no further, that person has the same faith as a demon. That's not a saving faith. In Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer believed in Jesus 
and was baptized, yet a few verses later we find out he wasn't saved. So what are we to make of all this? Well, let's bring it down to the resurrection. Here's what will happen to the spirit and the body of all people, believers and unbelievers, when Jesus returns. Jesus said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. All people. In fact, Jesus put it another way in a different verse. He said, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So believers will be resurrected to eternal life with an imperishable body, but unbelievers will also be resurrected and they will have an imperishable body. Believers will spend eternity in heaven. Unbelievers will spend eternity in a place of torment called hell. That's quite a difference. So what I'm asking you to do this morning is, number one, don't rely on a sentimental view of Easter to be saved. Jesus lived and died and rose so you can live and die and rise. God, you probably have heard this before, but it's not a cliche. God loves you so much that he sent his son for you. There's no greater expression of love in the universe and the Bible says Jesus did not come to condemn you. It says he came to save you. And so if you're not saved, he invites you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Now, how is a person saved? What does a concrete saving belief in Jesus look like? Let me give you an analogy. First of all, you have to genuinely believe that you're lost and you will spend eternity apart from Jesus for one reason, and that is your sins. The Bible says all have sinned, and you believe that about yourself. And you know those sins condemn you before a sinless God. Just a side note, my personal testimony, many of you don't know it, but some of you don't. I was 23, I was lost, and once I realized that my sins made me guilty before a holy God, I was terrified because I knew what the penalty for those sins were. You cannot bear the penalty for your sins. So you know those sins, sins condemn you before a sinless God. So knowing your guilt, now this is an analogy. Knowing your guilt, you say, I'm going to go to God and turn myself in. I'm just going to go to him and confess my sins. When you do that, you learn that Jesus was arrested for your sins, not you. They got the wrong guy. Jesus was charged with your crimes, not you. You protest. You say to God, look, I'm the guilty one. I deserve that death sentence. And God says, that's true. But I love you. So I sent my son to serve that death sentence for you. And then he rose from the dead to defeat your enemies of sin and your enemy of death. And you can go free. If you believe that Jesus bore your sins for you, that he rose from the dead, and that it is your desire to follow him for the rest of your life. So this morning, if you've never come to Christ, we want to invite you to come to him in repentance and faith. Confess your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Submit your life, body and soul, mind and heart, to Jesus as Lord and Master today. Ask him 
to lead you to a new life on earth that will end in a glorious life in heaven. And sometimes when people get to the point they recognize their sins, the devil just likes to push them off the cliff the wrong way. They think, well, I, you know, I can't be forgiven for some of this. Folks, whatever you have done, it will be forgiven. However long you've waited, you can come to him now. Whoever is opposing you, God will overcome them. His promise is, if you come to him, he'll never cast you out. Jesus is the best way to live and he is the only way to die. And if you're not normally in church, and I say this because this is part of my testimony. I mean, I come to church and I was as baffled as I could be. If you're not normally in church, I want to tell you three things. Number one, you're surrounded by fellow strugglers. I used to think, man, these other people have it together. How in the world can I? I mean, I just might as well give up because these people got it together. Come up close after church and I'll tell you how I don't have it together. I'll tell you about all my problems and thoughts and sins and my body aches and pains. I mean, I'll just give you the whole load. Nobody in this building even is close to having it together. It's a corny saying, but it's true. The, the church is not a cruise ship for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. So you're surrounded by fellow strugglers. Number two, the church is the only place that can point you to real hope. I looked everywhere before I became a Christian. I looked at some of the dumbest stuff I, I don't even, I shouldn't even tell it from a pulpit because you're going to make fun of me. I actually wrote a paper in college on something called pyramid power, that pyramids could summon some kind of power in the universe. I didn't believe it, but I actually researched it. <laughs> now you are laughing at me. <laughs> there are so many philosophies and worldviews, the only real place you can find hope is the church, and the only Real hope, the only hope you and I have is the risen Lord Jesus. He's given us a living hope by his resurrection from the dead. And that hope is not just a hope for this life. It's a hope for the life to come. Would you pray with me? Father?